Thanks again for listening in to Your Shadow Advisor, a weekly program about navigating higher education from a first-generation person of color perspective. I'm your host, Professor Daryl Wanzer Serrano. Y'all, I'm really excited to be doing the recording this week because I'm talking to a guest with an amazing new book uh, that I think basically everyone in higher education should read. Victoria Reyes is an associate professor of gender and sexuality studies at the University of California, Riverside. She is a sociologist and gender scholar who studies culture, borders, and empire. Her research and teaching interests include culture, global and transnational sociology, economic sociology, urbanism, historical and comparative sociology, qualitative methods, race and ethnicity, gender, and law and society. Dr. Reyes is author of the multi-award winning book, Global Borderlands, Fantasy, Violence, and Empire in Subic Bay, Philippines, and Academic Outsider, Stories of, of Exclusion and Hope, which was just published in July 2022 through Stanford Briefs, an imprint of Stanford University Press. Victoria and I don't kind of go way back. Uh, we actually just <laughs> talked to each other for the first time a few minutes ago. Uh, I learned about her book from a mutual friend and knew from the moment I saw the title that I wanted to meet and interview her for the podcast. So thank you for being here with me. Academic Outsider is a brave and outstanding accomplishment, uh, addressing the ways in which minoritized scholars are betwixt and between, lauded for our accomplishments while marginalized by structural inequalities inherent to the racialized and gendered organizations of higher education. Dr. Reyes writes with eloquence and a fine critical edge as she interrogates the systems she has navigated from graduate school through the tenure track to the present. Having made the mistake of obnoxiously marking in my copy in red pen, I'm totally going to have to buy a second one just to loan out because my pages are too marked up with exclamation marks, stars, exclamatory yeses, and profanities of agreement. To be sure, hers is a unique story, but it's also one that so, so many of us can and will identify with. So thank you, Victoria, for the gift of your scholarship and for sharing virtual space with me today. Oh, thank you, Daryl, so much for your kind introduction and words. I'm like, oh, can you write that down? Can I blurb it out? Um, it's, I'm so excited to be here to talk with you and just really kind of blown away by your kind words, right? Like I, it's terrifying to put this book out there and yeah, I'm just blown away. So thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, my pleasure. It really, it, and I, I mean every single word of it. It really is uh, an amazing book. Um, I can't wait to read it again uh, and can't wait to, uh, to have uh, students of mine read it and to just kind of like hand copies out basically. Um, <laughs> So, uh, you know, I, I've warned you in advance. Uh, one thing I like to do on interviews uh, uh, is to start with with a, with a kind of common question. And my common question is what I frame as the superhero question. Uh, and the question goes like this. What is your superhero origin story? How did you get started in your path in higher education to go to grad school, to enter professional life, et cetera? And what motivated you and what enabled your movement into these spaces? Yeah, thanks for that. That's, you know, I think as everyone does, I have a long version and a short version. I'll try to give you a middle version, right, or the, the short version. Um, <laughs> so when I was 
an undergrad. Um, I went to the Ohio State University and I was really involved um, in a lot of kind of student groups and fights for ethnic studies, but I also uh, volunteered a lot. So I, um, you know, and I've had a job since I was 14 and I was working at Old Navy, first, first under the table at a Chinese fast food restaurant, then Arby's and then Old Navy until um, I didn't work in retail anymore. And, but I also worked as a part-time house manager at a domestic violence shelter. I volunteered at a suicide prevention hotline. And through that work, I, I worked for a, a nonprofit organization on homelessness and housing in Ohio. And I realized I do not have the mental fortitude for direct service work. Um, and also just kind of the gendered racism in that kind of work too. I mean, I think this gets to your later question. I'm not sure if I would have known what I know now about academia, I'm not sure I would have gone into it. Um, and so, so one of the things was I took a Asian American women's history class with Judy Wu, who is now at UCI. And one of those uh, assignments was I did a oral history of my grandmother. And that was the only way she would let me talk to her about her life, because otherwise she doesn't want to talk about it. And it really sparked what we call our sociological imagination, right? How, how private troubles um, and public issues are, are entwined. And so I, I did kind of a creative piece for that. And then I wanted to do a thesis. And um, you know, Judy was on sabbatical, and then I took a sociology class um, with Rachel Dwyer. She was an assistant professor, and I asked her if she would um, if she would be my thesis advisor. I wanted to interview other women who migrated through marriage to U.S. servicemen, um, and then I was able to do that. And then when um, I was, I've been, I went to a heritage program in the Philippines probably the summer before that, and then a Fulbright after um, graduation with the encouragement of um, Rachel. And when I was there for the Heritage um, Program, that was when Gloria Macapagal-Arroyo, uh, GMA, was kind of all of these protests against her and kind of um, uh, the phone call to Garcia and, and all of these things um, about Philippine politics. And the program director would take us to these protests. And there were some um, people who would kind of dress up as like the Statue of Liberty. And, and I was like, what's going on? What, what happened with the Constitution? You know, I just wanted to know more. And then I was told like, why? Like, this is just the way it is. And so then I also realized like, I'm an academic. I want questions, puzzles. And then I applied to four grad schools and, and luckily was able to get into all four. Um, but that's kind of how it was, kind of this navigation of like direct service work of nonprofits, but then also realizing that scratch in my head or that thing I was always thinking about was the puzzles, right? Um, and then being an observer, I, you know, I write about this in Academic Outsider, but I've always been an observer and outsider, even in my own life. Um, and I think all of those kind of came together. Yeah, I mean, given that that kind of uh, uh, winding path into uh, into graduate school, how prepared do you think you were to start graduate school? And how much access do you think you had to the kind of like 
knowledge of what makes people successful in graduate school, what, what, what people call and you refer to in your book as well as the hidden curriculum? Well, there's two answers to that. That's one of when I applied to grad school and what I was thinking. <laughs> and that's like, I, you know, like I'm trying to figure out the rules and thinking if I, if I know the rules, if I know the hidden curriculum, and then if I do it, I can be successful. That there's, um, you know, meritocracy, right? It's very naive. Um, and then what I know now <laughs> and thinking I didn't know anything. I mean, I, I remember my first year in grad school was the hardest. It was the hardest culturally going to, I went to Princeton. I didn't know anything. I, I never read Marx before. So even in theory class, I was like, I don't know what this person is saying. Like it was so hard to read. Now I think Marx is beautiful or whatever. But I remember just always reading and studying. I hadn't, I took one sociology class before going into grad school and I would just work nonstop and, and didn't really feel like I knew anything <laughs> at all and always felt kind of behind and, and but trying to be a quick study, trying to soak up things through observation, trying to, you know, figure out the rules, but also always seeing like, you know, I love my cohort. I'm actually very lucky. I think our cohort was very supportive, but there was also a tiered system to our cohort, right? Um, in terms of you know, faculty and and you can see that even where people ended up and the um, you know, the the three men in my cohort. Um, who are all great, you know, and, um, but they're the only ones who got tenure track positions in sociology right out of grad school. And now they are, you know, at top five universities in sociology. And um, some of the women left, um, the women of color, two black women left my cohort, um, the women who got tenure track jobs, their first jobs, including mine. Um, were in interdisciplinary departments. Um, I was the only person, I think, who got a, a liberal arts job. Um, so there was also kind of these dynamics reflecting back, whereas when I'm there, I just kind of tried to put my head down and hustle, right? Like I was like, mm -hmm. this is what I need to do to get by. So I think that there are different levels of the answer depending on who you're talking to. But I, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, and I tried to be optimistic, but I was not prepared. And I tried everything I could do to soak up to kind of feel like I belonged. And part of that was also joining like a women of color um, a community uh, that was university wide and wasn't in the de Department of Sociology um, and being involved in, in those kinds of things. And then once you're on your dissertation, you didn't have to be there anymore, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it sounds like you'd say that uh, that 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 your level of, of preparation for grad school coming in differed a bit from some of your peers. What do you think were the biggest factors? I mean, you, you hinted at it just now in your answer, but but what do you think were the biggest factors structuring some of those differences? Well, I think a lot. I think family background. Right. Um, my grandma, you know, didn't go to college. My mom got a high school education. Um, I think that financially, right, I, I think all of these things, socioeconomic background, race, gender. Um, there were a lot of uh, people in my cohort who 
you know, already kind of knew some of the rules because they had family members who were, you know, academics and Mm -hmm. who went to kind of Ivy Leagues or these top schools. You know, Ohio State is a great school, um, but other people went to like Harvard or other places. So I think that there's just in all the ways that many of us continue to be excluded and an outsider because of our background when we are even privileged enough to hold tenure track jobs uh, or tenure stream jobs are very similar at the graduate school level. Yeah. So what was it you, know, you mentioned you mentioned joining um, uh, a, a, a student organization, right? What other kinds of resources, and including that one, did you find at the time were most helpful for you to find your way? Um, like what were the things that the the groups or um, or the the resources that you read or the mentors that you connected with? Um, that helped you kind of find your footing um, and and push through? Like what worked best and why? Yeah, I mean, I think it was this women of color um, group. So it's really in my first two or three years um, that probably mattered the most because that's when you're taking coursework, your general exam, yeah. et cetera. I really felt like I could. Um, so we had starting. So at the time um, we had kind of two empirical paper requirements um, in graduate school. In the first, you went through this kind of seminar, Martin Roof kind of taught ours. And so it was a structure to help us get to kind of uh, publishable or as much as publishable <laughs> as a grad student can write in a term um, or in a year uh, paper. The second paper that was a requirement, we didn't have that. Um, but I I couldn't have done it. I still meet with a group of women <laughs> that I started with. And so oh, wow. it, it started off bigger. Um, it started off with maybe, I want to say five or six of us, and they were all women, um, some women of, of color, um, Asian American women and white women, some were first uh, generation, but we would meet regularly to kind of workshop our second paper. And then it became a prospectus dissertation and then articles. And we still meet, we don't meet as regularly anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but now this is, you know, I started grad school in I think 2008. Um, our second paper was probably 2010. So we've been meeting over a decade. And this is what I think like it's about community and it's about, we didn't even study similar things, yeah. right? I still study global stuff. I study, you know, ever this, the people I still meet, um, you know, Aaron does religion and Joanne does education. And um, which is funny, this book is about education, but I'm not a, I don't consider myself a sociologist of education. Maybe I am now. Um, but we, uh, it wasn't necessarily the topic, right? finding some people with the same topic, but it was people to read, right? People to read and to give feedback. That's um, probably the biggest thing. And then mentors, mentors who allowed me to pursue my interest, right? Like I've had bad experiences in in grad school with a few people, um, but the two people like I was closest to kind of just let me this. And this is the kind of mentor I like to think I am or I, I aspire to be 
who just want, who wanted me to kind of be the scholar that I wanted. They weren't trying to replicate themselves. They were trying to help me theoretically, methodologically, as much as they could content-wise. No one did the Philippines, you know, um, and, mm-hmm. and no one really did Empire. Miguel probably does the closest. He does war and violence. Um, and so those were kind of the main things. And then, you know, at, at Princeton, most people kind of moved away after you did your general exams. Um, and then, you know, I had a life after, you know, when I was writing my dissertation after field work, right. So I lived in the Philippines for my field work and I came back and, um, you know, by the time I was on, uh, the job market, I was pregnant. Um, and so I think those, uh, the, the mentors I was able to find who weren't the mentors I originally thought I would have in grad school, right. You're supposed to pick a few, but those weren't the people I picked, but I'm so lucky and so grateful for the mentors that I've had. Um, I didn't think I'd be an economic sociologist. And to me, that's one of my core identities as a scholar. Um, and Viviana Zelzer is amazing, as is Miguel Centeno. Um, yeah, that's great. I mean, how, how much, uh, just to kind of like approach this with a, with a, with a really fine distinction, uh, how much did they, do you think those, those mentors, uh, encourage you to kind of like let you do what you wanted to do the kind of like a a kind of passive approach of letting you do those things versus how many of them uh encourage you to explore these areas that that maybe other people in your in your program and in your field weren't exploring um but but they saw that you could fulfill that that need yeah i don't know i think the other one thing that i learned um later on is i also don't know to what extent people and i think this is true for everyone you don't know the extent to which people um advocate for you right it wasn't until much later i realized that you know viviana had asked russell perenas who is now a good friend of mine to meet with me right Uh, i had just reached out to her and i thought you know, she was just like, okay, I'll meet with you. And then, you know, we became uh, friends and she's a mentor. I didn't learn till later that, that Viviana actually asked her, right? And did like mm-hmm. these behind the scenes. Um, so I think that there are things we don't know that mentors do. And I think that, um, you know, that there's different kinds of mentorship. And I think that the mentorship I received was the kind of mentorship that I needed and and was able to kind of thrive. I think that there's this differentiation and I talk about this in Academic Outsider. I mean, you would have some mentors who line by line reword and work and you know, those people have like one person in their apprentice and they they really do that and if they have other students, they don't really do anything with them, right? Um, you have other stu- other faculty who co-write books with, you know, students. Um, for me, you know, I and part of this may also be like, I think I was just grateful to be in the room. Because the thing is, people don't have to invest their time, right? Like, um, and so I'm, I consider myself very lucky to be able to find those mentors who, again, I hadn't identified, I hadn't thought I would work with. um, But they invested their time into me. And whether that was a mix of passive or active, um, I think that, you know, one thing, uh, so one thing a graduate student, a Filipino graduate student at Ohio State told me when I went to grad school, and I thought these words um, really stuck with me, is like, you should think of um, your, your career as three things, right? Content methods theory. You are probably never going to get all three in one place. 
And so you should pick which one or two you want the most training in, right? And so for me, I really, I felt like I didn't know anything about theory or methods, right? I was an international studies um, major and, and psychology. Um, and so I was like, I, I want training in methods and theories. And I, I knew content wise that there wasn't going to be necessarily anyone who did anything um, at my graduate program. And I do think I would be a different scholar today if I went to a different program. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? The, the training that you receive at graduate school, like the, the cultural approach at Princeton, being an economic sociologist, you know, taking those classes with Viviana really shaped my thinking and um, my approach. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. I love the I, I love that uh that kind of like three things to look for. Uh the mm -hmm. content, the method, and the theory. I like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna I hadn't I hadn't quite thought of it in exactly those terms. In part because I come from a field that 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 oftentimes doesn't explicitly think about and reflect on method. Like don't you know, in in, in rhetorical studies, it is it is not uncommon to lack a method section in a paper right <laughs> um so it doesn't like structure the field in quite the same way uh as uh as as social sciences um but i really like that that's helpful uh so you know you've mentioned it a few times uh and we've and we've kind of danced around a little bit let's talk about this book um, thanks okay so <laughs> So, uh, so to kick things off, uh, what's your what's your like one minute version of your book? What's it about? Who's it for? Who's it not for? So I know you sent me this beforehand, and I should be prepared. But I I'm so always bad at the elevator pitch, right? You're asking me to do an elevator pitch, and I'm like, yeah, my books, even my first book, I'm like, each essay does something different. But really, this book is about theorizing from my personal experiences, what it means to be excluded in everyday life and using the academy. And this is where I think it's important. You know, we often think of the university life and the academy as some exceptional space because we study, mm -hmm. you know, many people study inequality, not everybody, but many people do, right? So we study these things and we think that we're exceptional, but, but actually it's a workplace, right? And so yeah. really thinking about, um, the exclusionary processes and practices that push people to the margins and conversely what per pushes people to the center. Mm -hmm. That would be my one minute, like what is that book about? That Who is it for? So again, like I think there's the answer you're supposed to tell, but the real answer, right, is I wrote this book for myself. Yeah, I wrote this book because I needed to, because when COVID shut down schools, and my then kindergartner, who she was five, and then okay, they're like four years apart. So he was one. <laughs> I'm like I don't know. They're eight. They're eight and four now. But then my kids, you know, just and just a few months before the COVID shutdown, my grandma, who lives with me, uh, you know, she raised me. Now she's helping me raise my kids. Um, had a heart attack, um, and that was that changed my life completely. And then a few months mm -hmm. later, the COVID shutdowns. Kids are at school. Kids continue to be virtual all of 2020, 2021. And I felt like I was failing at, and that didn't just feel, I was failing at everything. I, I just felt like I, I just couldn't, I couldn't do anything. And so for me, writing is a way of thinking. It was a way of processing. You know, I've had decades of therapy because of my relationship with my mom and 
and all of these other things. So I think that the pandemic collapsed a lot of these kind of boxes I would place parts of myself in, right? Like, so mm -hmm. here's my therapy and my family. Here's this. Here's my work life. Here's this. And the pandemic just kind of shattered it all. And so this, I couldn't focus on my empirical project anymore, And but I, I needed to write. I I needed to. That's also another reason I think like I'm a writer. Uh, and so this is what came out. Even the first, it's not the first, but I think of it as the first chapter, the um, Unlove and Worth essay where I get really personal about my mom and, and um, you know, I talk about how she would say, she wishes she would have had an abortion. I should have never been bored. I was a bad seed. Um, you know, I, that just poured out of me, mm -hmm. you know, and then I was like reading, you know, writing personal and then trying to read and, and do all of this stuff. And the only revisions it's had, you know, and it, is because of a developmental editor, because I would get feedback and I was just like, I can't, I can't like, I can't revise this. I could revise the other ones. They're still personal, but there's something like so close to this. And so the developmental editor, Audra Wolf, outside reader is really amazing. Um, and, and she really helped clarify. But I think back to when I wrote it and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I felt like I was in a trance or something. It poured out of me. And then I'm reading and then I'm reading more and then I'm talking about new things. And so it all was my way of processing this trauma of the pandemic and deaths and all of these things. Um, so it was written for me. Now I would say, who is this book for? I'd say this book is for anyone who's been an academic outsider, anyone who's been an outsider in a workplace, particularly racialized outsiders. But also I think there are more ways than one that were outsiders. I also think tenured people should read it, right? Because yeah. It shouldn't just be on, you know, marginalized peoples to enact change that people need to recognize. I feel like the the more you get in your career, you forget, right? You forget how hard it was beforehand or the differences um, between, you know, yourself and, and people coming in. I think who it's not for, right, is, is, and there's a lot of people like that, academics who don't think microaggressions are a thing, right? Like, I don't think they'll, I don't think they would read this. And if they did, they wouldn't get anything out of it, except kind of dismiss me right. as a not serious scholar. But my hope is that it can serve as a way of people realizing they're not alone, that they belong, right? They do belong in the academy. Um, there are others like them. Um, and then also ways to kind of move forward, right? And and to remind tenured people in particular, although I don't buy into the narrative that it's only tenured people who can act change. I think everyone can. Yeah. Um, but they're the ones who are in the position to enact more structural change, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's who it's for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean I totally think that uh that that yeah. For me, from my perspective, right? Yeah, tenured people uh, can really benefit from the perspectives offered uh, in part because it'll get them to, I think, I hope, think more critically about the ways in which the institutions that they're a part of governing, right? As, as much as facu mm -hmm. fac faculty governance exists still, uh, they're a part of governing and a part of perpetuating, right? Uh, so it gives them uh, mm -hmm. a, some clarity, hopefully, to be able to, uh, to find ways to make the, that institution more just um, and to challenge the, the kind of exclusionary uh, 
policies and practices and procedures and cultures that are in place. Um, and for people who are on the tenure track or who are graduate students to, to, to give them that, that sense. I mean, I, I really, I really truly believe, right, that they'll, that the people will read it and say, gosh, you know, I, I feel seen. Um, this is a thing. This is my reality. I haven't seen it put so clearly. Um, so I, I suspect, and I would encourage people to, you know, to write you a nice little note that says, <laughs> hey, thank you. Well, yeah. Yeah, we don't get that often enough, but I, mm -hmm. and I try to, I try to do it. I'm not the best, but I think, I mean, that's where kind of, uh, you know, when I talk to particularly students anyway, and even people reflect it to myself, right? Because it's easier to give advice yeah. and then people tell me the same thing is the more specific you are in some cases, then the more theoretical you can be because it's only by rooting in the very specific that we can kind of um, think about the more general. And I want to say, because I want to say, I do you read Inside Higher Ed. Yeah. Right. Do you ever read it? Yeah. I so yeah. I read it every you know weekday. And today there was this ridiculous anonymous essay about. Oh yeah. Yes, <laughs> DEI. And when I read it, and they're like, "See, I am a champion for DEI. I served as head of the search committee, and we hired <laughs> someone who was marginalized. And then I sat on these committees, and they're like, "See, I am a proponent of DEI." And I was like, "This is." that's not how it works, right? Like that's not a, that's a very kind of superficial level commitment to kind of equity, to inclusion, to really understanding things and then saying, well, we're redlining. And, and, and this person, right, they're anonymous, knew how to use and co-op the language and yeah. co-op kind of what they saw as, oh, they think redlining that, that I don't mean to use it as a way to kind of dismiss people who have, um, BIPOC people who've been hurt, but in fact, I'm going to do it anyway, right? And, th and this is why, <laughs> like, it was just the most ridiculous thing. But as you were talking, that's yeah. what it made me think of is because it lies much deeper in the practices and the ways mm -hmm. we evaluate one another and, and not just kind of serving on a committee, hiring a person of color. What, A, like, are you committed to helping those people kind of uh, thrive and not just survive? Or are they rotating out and what kind of scholarship? And, you know, because often people don't really want quote unquote diversity. They want someone who doesn't look like them, but who thinks like them, right? Exactly. Right? Who thinks like in sociology, like empiricist and, and thinks like them in terms of research, but not really like the critical thinking, right? So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think my book is almost a response to that, that it's not just about, oh, you hired, you know, two people of color, right? That's your kind of commitment to diversity. It doesn't work like that. That's not how people are excluded, right? That, not all of it. That is how people are excluded, but that's not, I don't know. I just, I read that this morning and I was just like, that's I, my eyes I rolling. Did, this is not I, yes. a visual medium. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I don't. I don't have a sound effect for eye roll. I don't think. But I had the. I had like the same reaction to it. I saw it. I was like, "Wait, what is this?" And I started reading through it. I was like, "Oh, rage filling me." And then I like put it aside. I'm like, "No, I'm doing this interview soon. I want to be in a happy place." <laughs> I don't need to go rage posting on the interwebs, uh, but uh, but but 
but I might put a link to it in the show notes, especially if there's a response <laughs> to it. Or maybe I'll just post the response to it because it would inevitably link to the original. Um, but yeah. maybe maybe you should and write I a response too. to it. Yeah, I was thinking, but then I'm, you know, one thing I'm learning, so I've been so stretched thin and, and as many of us are, um, it's like, where do I want to put my energy and time? And do I want to? I like had written a piece that's something different, but uh, it's like, where do we want to put our time? Do I want to put my time giving this anonymous essay? The person didn't even want to kind of put their name in part because the, of the backlash, right? Right. And it's, if you have these opinions, right, then you need to be able to withstand question and critical thinking about what's going on. And so, so then I like, I was, I was gonna, I was like, should I tweet about this? Should I not? And I was like, you know what? I am trying to save my energy similar to you. And putting it there is not the most productive use of time. I've limited time. What else can I do? And I'm behind on so many things. So, oh my gosh. Yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I think the experience of, uh, of marginalized folks in the academy, right, is one that results in being tired. I mean, you write about that in your book, right? Um, In the chapter on on conditional Mm -hmm. citizenship. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to do the, the like author meets critic thing quote from the book for a second. Um, uh, you're, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of framing, uh, framing parts of the project and you say, what does it mean for me to be breaking that silence now to be sharing these private experiences in a book published by an academic press? It means I'm tired, exhausted by the constant labor of managing a presentation of self that is stripped down, devoid of any remnants of who I am or how I grew up. Um, and that, that kind of like, that that pressure on our identities right within higher education right does so often result in and not just in times of the pandemic right as if they, as if that could ever be a just uh but it results in us being exhausted right mm-hmm. this this you know this op-ed today right it's just you know looking at it and going don't want to say anything first i want to be in a good headspace but also i'm just tired of this yeah <laughs> um Yeah. And it's, and I think that, you know, the response that people then give is say no, or you're bringing it on yourself. Like they don't understand the mental and emotional labor, right. Um, That goes on and kind of commitments that there's this neoliberal individualism that, you know, especially in the U.S., that's the kind of U.S. broad kind of culture, but in, in academia in particular, right, it's the focus on ourselves when that's not the case for many of us. And the other thing is, like, I think that people, mm-hmm. in my experience, who are um, the ones, in my opinion, pushing people out, um, don't understand identity as, as structural positions, that these yeah. are structural positions. It's not, it's it's a way of being treated of exclusion. It's our experiences growing up are different. It's the ways in which all of these things, right? Um, black feminists have been writing about for a very long time. Um, and that's what I think people don't understand. That's what that anonymous writer doesn't understand in that inside right. higher ed piece. So, yeah. But it's tiring. I'm I'm exhausted. And, you know, I someone who I used to work with would probably say, Well, it's your choice to have kids. It's your choice to serve on these committees. It's your choice to do this. It's your choice to give money to family in the Philippines. It's your choice. And it's just like tiring. Yeah, absolutely. 
to bring us back to uh, to some other kind of specific points in the in 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 the book, um, you know, one of the concepts that you uh, that you that you engage uh, in critical ways um, is this concept of the of the hidden curriculum, and this has been written about um, a lot lately, right? There's the there's the book, A Field Guide to Grad School, right? Uncovering okay. the Hidden Curriculum, which which centers that concept. Um, you know, a lot of uh, hashtag Twitter uh, work around that concept. Um, bracketing for a second the the, the criticisms, because I do want to get into those those criticisms. I think that you have um, that you have an excellent way of doing so. What does the hidden curriculum as a framing device get right? Right. So like, what does it get right? And then, and then after that, what does it miss? Yeah. Well, so first I want to kind of disclose, and I, I was kind of purposeful of this because I was like, I see this as an accompaniment to a field guide to grad school that Jess was one yeah. of the people. She's blurbed my book. Um, she was a, a reviewer in a workshop, a book workshop I had. And, and I really kind of appreciate her work and, and her book and, and getting all this information out there. And I think that what, as you mentioned, what the hidden curriculum gets right is that people don't have the knowledge, right? You don't grow up. If you don't grow yeah. up with, for example, in a, in a upper class or middle upper class um, white household where, you know, uh, parents as faculty or as professionals or education, they're just things that you don't know, right? Um, and so there's mm -hmm. so much, right? Like I, I have a friend uh, who's one of the friends from grad school that I still kind of write with, um, Joanne Wang um, Golan also had her book um, out that is, oh my gosh, why am I, I'm so sorry, Joanne, um, but it's about uh, teaching at a no excuses school with majority black and brown students. And what happens though, is they get taught these different rules, but it's this teaching to authority, right? As opposed mm -hmm. to kind of this flexible curriculum. So anyway, what it gets right is that there are things that people just don't know, and you're not taught um, ways in which how you talk to someone, how do you talk to um, a professor? How do you kind of even address them? What are the ways in which, you know, so many different things that she outlines that just outlines, um, in her book so well. Um, and I think mm -hmm. that there is a need to kind of democratize kind of this information. Um, and I think, you know, that's part of how I run some, uh, um, some of my classes. So the very first day um, I go over the syllabus, I dedicate, right? Like right now on Twitter, there's a lot of like anti-syllabus kind of rhetoric. I don't know. Um, but I, I, Think it's so important and I go over it and I go questions and I have explanations and I'm like why do we take this class and and not only these are office hours but this is the part of the class your readings you're supposed to get this here's my lecture yeah. right like like I I do all of that and I think that there is um an important scripting the moves right sorry I was like on my phone scripting the moves is Joanne's book sorry so right so so again like there's so much on this hidden curriculum and of course Anthony um Anthony Jack and his privileged poor right look those are just some of the major ones um there's so much information there but it's not just about knowing information that's yeah. not how people are excluded right it's in the de devaluation and dismissal 
of people, of experiences, of certain types of work, of certain types of knowledge, of certain ways of being, right? Um, and so mm -hmm. that's where it misses, right? Like people can, that's how, that's what's kind of driven me, like how I've gotten to where I've gotten is I, I thought if only I can learn the rules of the game, right? Like if only I can do this. And for me, it's kind of this, this really kind of um, search to fill this deep hole inside me where, you know, I feel like I'm unworthy and I'm unlovable just from, you know, um, my mom. And so it was this, if only I could get this award, if only I could do this, if only I could do this, that means that I'm worthy. That means that I'm good enough. But, you know, my book talks about all the ways in which, like, people are still dismissed. Like, it's not just about knowing information. Knowing information is helpful and is a first step, but we can't stop there. It's the very structures and practices that we really need to kind of interrogate the foundation. What advice columns do and hidden curriculum, it just assumes that, oh, well, black and brown scholars and others aren't at exposition because they don't know enough. And it's very it can be paternalizing um uh -huh. but that's not the case it's like active exclusion right yeah sorry i yeah, could go on tangents yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Try to pause. this is not a a monologue this is a conversation <laughs> um so in your book, you you propose academic citizenship as a kind of um, I don't I don't want to say you propose it as an alternative frame, but it functions kind of as an alternative frame. It seems like because it it both captures some of those knowledge practices right that are encompassed by the hidden curriculum, but a bunch of other stuff too. So why is it that you you know why why do you like that as a frame for engaging these questions and issues? Um, and then, you know, the follow-up to that is what might it miss? Yeah. So what I like about citizenship is when we think of citizenship, often people just think of the legality. But in fact, scholars have long talked about going from Iowa Ong to more recently Jean Beeman um, or um, Leila Lalami, who um, is a creative writer, talk about citizenship and it's um, how culture and politics and, and belonging is part of it, right? But even historically, not everyone was granted equal rights in terms of citizenship, whether that's in the United yeah. States or in the histories of empire or anything. And what I, I liked about kind of citizenship is one, like other people, Bruce McFarlane, I think, um, talks about citizenship um, in terms of service. And that's often a kind of common way to think about our work. Oh, are you being a good department citizen, right? Does that mean, are yeah, you uh -huh. doing the work? Are you doing like committee work, et cetera? But what I was really interested in, what I was really frustrated with, um, and part of what like was so exhausting is also the rights people had. So the UC system is, um, I really like the UC system. It has the potential for um, I think so much, um, but it can be used wrong. And so then it gets to kind of when you're not granted voting rights, but you're still expected to do all the labor. Um, and when you're not granted voting rights because, you know, your contributions aren't seen as valid. And so, so what I liked about citizenship is that mm -hmm. in academia, right, and we think about citizenship in all of these parts um, that encompass rights, responsibilities, about belonging, about marginalization. And I thought that it could map on very well, especially after um, 
reading, and this is uh, Randall Contreras um, suggested the book, uh, Lalami's book about conditional citizenship. And she talks about it in terms of more kind of formal being um, uh, from MENA um, group and the ways in which people are um, denied conditional citizenship. And the same thing I think happens in academia. Um, and that's most people focus on the service aspect, but it's really about the rights and responsibilities too. I think what does it miss? You know, I wanted to say, well, you know, that there are these stratified rights and responsibilities in these second class kind of quote unquote citizenships, whether we think about precarious um, academic labor, which is most of what university relies on and grad students. But as you mentioned, like there's always been second class citizenship, um, you know, in the United States, for example, um, particularly uh, against marginalized groups, whether that be any kind of um, combination of marginality. I think that kind of thinking about citizenship in the workplace is kind of like uh, is unconventional. And so what does that mean when we think about citizenship in the workplace? But for me, what I really like about it is it's about kind of thinking about people as treating people with dignity and respect and belonging. Right. And, mm-hmm. and thinking about rights and responsibility. I don't know. I don't really have a good question for yeah. what it misses <laughs> or a good answer. Um, because I, I do think it's powerful, but I also know that this kind of workplace citizenship, you know, that, well, you leave the workplace, you can move workplace much easier than kind of a national citizenship and that there might be, um, those kinds of things. But I'm thinking about like pitching something to Harvard Business Review about that, but I like, so I'm still working on like, I don't know what the limitations or how can we think about it? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that that, that does make it particularly fitting to uh, to higher education, though, is uh, it has to do with the ways that higher education is not like any other business or workplace, right? That it, you know, that while it is, you know, at the end of the day, this is just a job, right? Um, that we are laborers in a particular, uh, you know, structured and hierarchical organizational context. Um, that is, you know, at the whim of various uh, financial pressures and exigencies, uh, that it's also more than that in some ways, right? Like, for example, our job cycle, right, doesn't follow the same job cycle as everywhere else, <laughs> as any other kind of workplace, right? We have a pretty set cycle and defined hiring uh, and, uh, and, and uh, departure periods. Um, and that the space is structured around um, around crafting senses of belonging in implicit and explicit ways, right? So, like the higher education, um, the like student success, success scholarship right now is very focused on the kind of power of crafting a sense of belonging as being key to success of students, but also for the success of uh, of, of faculty, especially kind of underrepresented faculty in higher education, right? Belonging is key. Well, this is a, it's a, it's a citizenship term. And so it is a, there's a there's a rhetoric of citizenship, right? That even when the word citizenship isn't being used, all the kind of clustered terms, right, circulate in this employment context, in this labor context. That um, that I'm not saying they don't sep- circulate in in other in other employment contexts, but it's a core part of 
what the university does, and in some ways of the history of the university in the United States, at least, right? Um, that the universities have been these kinds of like uh, uh, laboratories for democracy is not the is not the is not the right way to put it, but part of the mission of universities, right? Uh, you know, even like the land grant universities, which are built upon the dispossession of uh, and the stealing of native lands, uh, mm -hmm. is explicitly also framed as a democratizing mission for the university, right? Of getting all these farmers, right, educated to be capable citizens in the world, and so. The purpose of the university has been structured explicitly around citizenship, but also that citizenship rhetoric circulates internally in the university. Um, so, I mean, I think that I think yeah. we're onto something. <laughs> I think that there's also, I mean, that's K through twelve, right? That's what, what is it, Boyles and and Glint or the um, uh, that's thinking about like even K through twelve um, education, but. You know, it hasn't always seen everybody, right? So Tressie um, McMillan Cotton talks about this a lot um, in the same way, right? Like it's purposely excluded particular types of people as being oh, yeah. citizens or not. Um, but I also think I wonder like lawyers, doctors, right? Like lawyers probably have this veneer of like, you know, belonging and all these things. So and so anyway, so I, 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 agree with you i also think that there's something to like academia is just a regular professional workplace you uh -huh. know like there is a, i don't know i think that there's something to that too that it's not as exceptional yeah. as we hope it to be um because our work we have yes we have these ideals but our work is very much in how we're evaluated and how like just workplace dynamics, right? Like that's all I want to do, for example. That's all I think a lot of us want to do is just be able to do our job, which is our research, yeah. our teaching, and our service, you know? So so, so I understand and I agree um, with you. I also think that there's something to like it not being an exceptional workplace. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't, <laughs> I don't believe that it is an exceptional workplace, but but universities like to fancy yeah. themselves as an exceptional workspace. That's true. Yeah. No, that's um, true. That's true. It gets to like this apprenticeship model too. And it's a call. Yeah, it, right. It's this things that undergrid like passion and exploitation is that it's your calling, mm -hmm. right? Or like you need to like do all of this stuff. Like in the pandemic, right? You, faculty are called to do more and more and more. Um, and it's supposed to be about our commitment, our commitment to our students. And a lot of people do, and that's the case for K through 12 as well. But but then also people should be rewarded as much and be compensated for their labor. Anyway, I know you have other questions. Yeah. We could probably talk all day on some of these questions. We totally could. I want to get one more question in um, about the the book. And that's the, that's the kind of more hopeful question. Um, yes. So walk me through um, the normative commitments of what you're calling academic justice, right? Um, and beyond those normative commitments, what are some examples of what that can look like in practice? Yeah, so, the, well, maybe, sorry, I know go on tangents. I don't know. People listen. I listen to my podcast when I run. And so hopefully like people won't mind if this runs a little long. Um, but if I am going too long, just like go X. Um, You're totally fine. I, <laughs> this was actually 
one of this was also a hard essay for me to write, even in my book workshop, the first draft, it didn't have this. And I talk about that. It's hard to be hopeful. It's hard to think about change. And in fact, I completely revised this um, to center uh, Zakia Luna's and Whitney Pirtle's Black Feminist Sociology edited volume, because when I it came out and I read it, I just thought, there it is, right? That we need to kind of rely on on what they're saying and what a lot of you know black women in particular have been saying about the academy. And so part of the and I'm not the first one to talk about academic justice too, right? Like so mm-hmm. I'm um, involved and active in the Sociologists for Women in Society, um, and they have a whole committee about academic justice. They have committees against discrimination and, and more just environment. So it's really thinking about these feminist commitments. And what it is, is about how can we have a system where people are just able to be free of microaggressions, be free of racism, be free and just be able to kind of be supportive and be valued um, and and not like sometimes academics can be so personal and tear down and critique, but in fact, like that's not healthy. And so I think right? It's where everyone is is granted rights. They're seen as worthy. Their citizenship is not conditional. And again, that doesn't mean we can't evaluate people, right? And so what does this look like in practice? What would a just academy be like? And again, you know, here, I know that Mike Davis just wrote something about like hope and um, and he doesn't believe in hope, et cetera. But I, I um, really follow Sarah Ahmed, um, Mirame Kaba, Rebecca Solnit, and really thinking about hope as separate from optimism and hope tied to work mm-hmm. and hope animates the struggle. Um, Kaba talks about hope as a discipline that we have to practice every day. And so this is part of, and we fail. I fail. I fail all of the time. No one is perfect. And it's part of how we respond. So what are some practical ways? Yeah. Um, one is even thinking about how we do evaluation and looking for potential instead of poking holes, right? A lot of grad school is about like you train them to poke holes and things and tear it down. But instead, especially in some of my classes, no, it was really what is the potential? What is the finding here? And, and how can we do that? Um, and how can we do that? in our graduate programs and kind of structure it? How can we do it in the writing groups who are a part of? How can we do that in our peer review? The problem is, you know, some people like, um, like Christine Williams wrote something about abolishing the R&R. And, and to me, I think that that actually will just increase kind of inequities in the academy. Um, I have only learned how to write because uh, of a second R&R and because people are able to and willing to take the time to kind of help me craft something. So the problem is not the double R&R. The problem is, and the, what pushes people out is the kinds of reviews they get that attack the very kind of idea and value or methods, a very kind of core of what their ideas are rather than seeing the potential. And service work is devalued, right? Our whole academy is built on this peer review system, but yet it's devalued in all of our evaluation, right? Like it's devalued, um, particularly at research universities. Um, And so there's, so that's part of it, right? Service work or for mentorship, 
um, right? Or, or, or for teaching and thinking about like, I read this, um, I was really lucky to go through pedagogy training at, at Bryn Mawr. That was my first um, job. And reading some of this pedagogical work about like, there's one where it's like the, the um, dysfunctional illusion of rigor. Um, and I was just so captured by that essay. And it's like, why do we have certain deadlines? Why don't we, you know, so in my classes now I, I have revise and resubmit options. You can revise and resubmit yeah. your exams, right? Because that's what learning is. It's not about memorization. Yeah. It's not about like students as Paul Fear, and I'm sure I'm, I'm mispronouncing his name wrong. I apology, but pedagogy of the oppressed, right? It's all about like students are not, calls it the banking model of education you just pour it in mm -hmm. but students aren't that that's not respecting who they are it's not respecting them as as holistic and so for me i think that that needs to be kind of at the core and you know in some ways it's not quite the same but in some ways you know Rissel perenius's new book um unfree kind of her recommendation for kind of domestic work and, and that book is about the arab states is thinking about the moral foundation of the market and, and domestic work in many ways it's very parallel to kind of the more the morality and dignity and respect and and treating people because it's not okay to treat people the way they are that the way that some academics do to others particularly the gatekeepers right who are at yeah. the top you know so anyway so so those are some some of the the practical right it is really thinking about sometimes i feel like people just teach the way they do because that's the teaching you received. And so it's kind of this right. um, uh, reproduction. But for me, and, and I taught a teaching sociology class, and what I try to do is thinking about intentional, really being intentional about the way you teach. And why do you teach this way? Why? Why grades this? Why? I don't believe in a standard distribution of grade. I think that more reflects someone's teaching than actual like pedagogy and, and the students themselves. Um, so anyway, I could go on and on, but those are a few. And, 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 this essay kind of lays out, you know, in academia, there's that trifecta of research, teaching, service, and it tries to at least point to or gesture to some ways. And I'm sure I've missed out a lot. And I'm sure I've missed out on on critical analyses of some of my suggestions, too. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But that it's a start. Yeah. And it's relying yeah. on what others have said, too. Right. Like, so that's something else. Like, I, I, I think that we have to practice this kind of intellectual and just humility in, in our work and it's a, it's contra to academics right because you're taught to like you need to promote yourself and it's all about you and what you do you do you do and and you're an expert etc cetera, etc cetera. but really it's not it's about it's about community and it's about building a department that is you know committed it's about building these these communities yeah that's fabulous um, I'm, 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 I'm wary of taking too much of your time, but I do want, <laughs> I do want to, I do, no, it's fine. I, I this is, this is a, this is a lovely conversation. I feel like I could do, we could do a whole month chatting, <laughs> um, several episodes, but I do have one final question, um, that I'm, that I'm trying to end all of my interviews on. And, and that's what I'm calling my, uh, the, the top three things question. So, what are the top three things that you wish people had told you going into graduate school or while in graduate graduate school, um, or the pro, or going into the professoriate for that matter? So, what are three things you wish you had been told 
before you had to figure it out on your own. That would help me stay, right? Like that's the key thing. Yeah. Right? Um, or or not. Or is, not. I mean, if one of the things is run, run while you can, like that's an honest answer. No, I actually I love my job. I love my job. I love being able to research what I want, teach what I want. I really enjoy service. I actually really love being an academic. I think it's the politics. So three things. I'll try to mention three things. So one is the um, the profession is much bigger than your department. It can often not feel that way because your department is structuring who you read, what, how you think, all of these things. But the profession is so much bigger, right? I know ASA has a lot of like, there's critiques against. I really love, that's our um, association yeah. The American Sociological Association. Um, that's how I've been able to find my community, right? And and find people who have gotten me to where I am. So one is your department is not the profession. Second, related, is that there are people who already get you and who know your worth. And part of it is to find and build your community. And we are out here. And there are people out here and that's how you can survive is through other people. Right. And then um, the third thing would be that, you know, not everyone is going to like you. I went to a national women's studies association one year for a pre-conference. And I, I know this isn't the first time I, I was told this, but you know, I, it, you know, you're told different things and it hits you differently. And I was like, oh, you know, and I write this in my essay out oh, in an essay, like, oh, what do, you, what do you want to accomplish? It's up to you. And I was like, well, not really. It's up to the reviewers. It's up to the editors. And they're like, why do you want to publish in that journal? And I'm like, oh, because, you know, it finally proved my worth. And they're like, no matter what you do, someone is not going to like you, right? Like, no matter what you do, there are people who are going to question you. But in fact, yeah. there are people, and, and this woman said, in this room right now, who see you for who you are, who value you, right? So all of this is kind of interconnected is that there is space for you. That space may feel really small and constricted um, in your graduate school right now. And that's where I think getting, you know, sometimes dissertation committees, you can bring in an outsider, right? Like an outside committee members, or you can do that. But, but know that your department is not the profession. I mean, that's kind of like, the one big thing and then the others are related yeah. in community. Yeah. Three great points. Thank you so much. You know, <laughs> really, I, I just want one more time to thank you for joining me for this conversation today. Uh, it's truly been wonderful to have you. Thank you so much. It's been so great chatting with you and sorry for being so long and going on these tangents, um, you know, but it's, it's been a pleasure yeah. and thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah. Yeah. But no, really my, my pleasure. And I, I'm sure the listeners are going to, are going to love what you have to offer. Um, and to those listeners, thank you for joining as well. Uh, I really value each and every one of you and hope that this show helps in one way or another as you continue your own paths navigating higher education. Uh, since I try to keep the show as listener-driven as possible, please send me your thoughts and questions. Uh, hit up the show on Twitter or shoot me an email at your leisure. At, and if you do have a question, please send it to questions at yourshadowadvisor.com or head to the website to submit an audio question that I might air on the podcast. 
So that's it for today. Uh, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're feeling up to it, please leave us a five-star rating and review. Thanks again for listening in. I'll be back with more next week.